0: Colossians 2, if you'd like to have your copy of the scriptures open, you can take out the outline in the bulletin. This morning is a continuation of what we talked about last week. When you look at the book of Colossians, Colossians 2, 16 to 23, really functions as one single unit of thought, and we took the first half of that passage last week, and we talked about some of the dangers in Colossae to focusing on Jesus Christ as the sole source of salvation. We talked about legalism and we talked about mysticism. This morning we're going to look at verse 20, 21, 22, and 23, the back half of this section. All of it, last week and this week, all of it together falls under the big driving theme of the book of Colossians. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And Paul, as we've worked through the book up to this point, has made that point several different ways. One of the ways he's made that point is to talk about Jesus with the title Lord. He has called Jesus Lord. He is the Lord over all. He's talked about Jesus in chapter 1, verse 18, as the preeminent one, the supreme one, the first place one. He talks about Jesus in chapter one as the Lord of creation, the creator, and the Lord of redemption. He not only made the world, but he sustains his creation, and he is the author and the perfecter of our faith, to steal a phrase from the book of Hebrews. Jesus is supreme. That's what Paul wants this church and our church to know and to remember and to be rooted in, but there were challenges to the supremacy of Jesus in Colossae, just like there are challenges to the supremacy of Jesus today. We talked last week about these mystical visions, people saying, Well, I, I had a, an angel, an angelic experience of some kind. We talked last week about people who were taking the old covenant, Old Testament laws and rules and regulations, and trying to make them the basis of our relationship with God. We've got to obey. To a certain degree, in order for God to love us and to accept us. We looked at last week, Colossians 2 16 to 17. There's a warning about food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. And we connected all of those ideas back to the Old Covenant, Old Testament laws. Paul says those things are the shadow, Christ is the substance. The shadow was pointing you to something, to someone greater than just the mere shadow of his coming. And now that he's come, don't go back to the shadow, but hold fast to the substance. He's warning them about the kind of legalism that says, Jesus is great, we all need Jesus, but you're also going to need to keep all of these Old Covenant, Old Testament rules and regulations about food and drink Festivals and new moons and Sabbath. He's warning them about that challenge. Now, something we have talked about in recent weeks we need to just put on the table so that we can make sense of it in a few minutes is this idea of the principalities and powers. Bible scholars use this phrase, the principalities and powers, to refer to personal spiritual evil beings. In common parlance, we would say demons. But Paul rarely uses that word, only a couple of times. We'll look at some of those in a minute. Does he use the word demons? He prefers a different set of terms. So in Colossians one sixteen and 2.15, he talks about uh, dominions and thrones and rulers and authorities. All of those fall under this category of personal, evil, spiritual beings that oppose God and oppose his people. Twice in chapter 2, Paul uses the phrase, the elemental spirits of the world. That's a, a group of beings that fall under the principalities and powers. Personal, evil, spiritual beings. They oppose God and they oppose God's people. In Galatians, Paul makes reference to the elemental spirits of the world. And he says, by nature, they are not God's, they are created beings, but they are in rebellion to their creator, and they stand in opposition to not only God, but also his people. We're going to come back to that and talk about these these beings this morning. Here's the big idea, and it's connected with the passage last week, so it's the exact same big idea that we talked about last week. Salvation is found in Christ alone. In Christ alone. This is one unit of thought and Paul's driving home this truth that salvation can be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. In this back half of this passage, there is less focus on salvation in Christ and there is more emphasis on warning the church in Colossae about other things that would challenge the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his people looking to him alone for salvation. Salvation is found in Christ alone. When I was in high school, I read a book, and the book was called Fast Facts on False Teachings. Uh, It's not the greatest book about world religions. I've since gone back and read it uh, many other times and referenced it, and I thought, oh, I don't think this is exactly right. I don't agree with him in this instance. But that book, as a high school student, was my introduction to world religions and cults. It was the door that opened up a whole world of belief in theology and doctrine that I had absolutely no idea was even out there. And it was a fascinating book to me. It's a helpful book. Those sorts of books are helpful in clarifying what it is we believe as Christians as opposed to false religions and cults and other groups. And so I read this book in high school, and one of the chapters that, if I'm just honest, hurt my head was the chapter on Hinduism. Had a whole chapter on Hinduism, laying out what it is that Hindus believe. Now, I read this book in high school. It's been a long time since I was in high school. I've read other books about Hinduism. We just did a worldview class. We're reading a a worldview book by James Sire. He talks about Hinduism under the umbrella of Eastern pantheistic monism. I've taken classes at seminary about world religions and Eastern religions. Hinduism still hurts my brain i just be honest with you. When I read about it and when I think about it and I try to get my arms around it, I just think this is a strange set of beliefs. This is a bizarre worldview. And I just have a, a hard time really comprehending what it is that's at the center of Hinduism. And one of the things that frustrates me is the question of how many gods Hindus recognize. Some Hindus say there is really only one God, And this deity, this soul deity manifests itself, himself, herself in millions and millions of different ways. Other Hindus say no, 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 there's actually 33 core Hindu deities. And then other Hindus say there's actually 33 million. That's a big gap, 33 to 33 million Hindu deities. And then another group of Hindus come along and say it's actually 330 million. It's not 33, it's not 33 million, it's 330 million. And then there's another group that says, look, quit worrying about the number. There are as many Hindu deities as there are Hindus. The number is not limited. Only limited by the number of actual practicing Hindus. And I read this and I think about this and I think I'm like most Americans. I just look at that and I say, I I don't get it. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. This, is, uh, this is just seems absurd on the face of it. I can't make sense of it. And I think most Americans feel that way when we see all the proliferation of deities and all the different things that are worshipped in a Hindu context. And yet, in the United States of America, there has been a worldview revolution taking place. And whether you and I have realized it or not, we now live in a day and age where the supreme ultimate religious authority is not one God or 33 gods or 330 million deities. It's the self. It's every single isolated autonomous self is the highest religious authority for millions and millions of people. When they think about ultimate reality, they say the core of what is ultimately real is inside of me, which means we can sort of look down our nose at the Hindus for their 330 million gods, but the dominant worldview where we live and when we live says that there are as many gods as there are. People. it's not necessarily using the word God in the same sense that we would use it here on a Sunday morning at Emmanuel. But what they're saying is the highest authority, the most real thing in the universe is the internal self in me, in you, in you, in you, in you. That is, we live in a nation populated by about 330 million people coincidentally. Many people would say you live in a world or in a nation with 330 million little g self-gods. And as Americans, we have no sense of history. We just think that we invented everything. We think that we have really stumbled onto something great by inventing this idea of the self being the most important thing and all the rest of it. Look, mankind, human beings, have a long, rich history of man-made religion self-made religion. It's really nothing new. It's nothing unique to the United States of America. It's nothing unique to India and the dominant Hindu culture there. It's something that mankind has actually been doing since the very beginning. When Adam and Eve lived in relationship with their creator and they decided rather than this revealed faith, we're going to make up our own. Rather than putting God at the center of our religion, we're gonna put the serpent at the center of our religion. Or some people may say we're going to put ourselves at the center of our religion. The danger in Colossae was self-made religion, man-made religion. It was a danger in the beginning. It's a danger today in the United States of America. If you look in this passage in verse 23, and I'm reading out of the ESV, I acknowledge that Paul talks about self-made religion, that ESV, English Standard Version, and the New American Standard Version, two of the most direct literal translations of the original text, use this phrase, self-made religion. Now understand, other translations translate Paul's thought a little bit differently here. Some talk about self-imposed religion. But we're going to work off this idea this morning of Paul warning the church in Colossae about self-made religion, man-made religion. And he's gonna lay out in this passage some of the dangers of turning from Christ alone and trusting in some sort of self-made religion. Here's the first warning. Self-made religion has the appearance of wisdom. It does not actually have wisdom, but it does have the appearance of of wisdom. Paul talks about that in verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Uh, let me tell you another story about a book that I read that I think helps explain what Paul means when he's contrasting wisdom and the appearance of wisdom. Got out of high school and I went to college. And I had a friend who was very into Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I had never read it, and he shamed me into saying, you're just a worthless human if you've never read it. So I read this book, and it it was amazing when I read the, the trilogy. It was absolutely amazing. And the characters in this story are great, and the plot line in the story is fantastic. But here's the most important impressive, amazing feature of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books. If you've read them, you know this. It's the world that he created. He created literally an entire world. And there's all these different groups of people in the world. There's human beings and there's orcs and there's elves and there's hobbits and all these creatures and all these beings. And he didn't just make up these different creatures, but he made up their languages, And he wrote them out phonetically and created dictionaries for all of these people. He had histories, anthologies written outside of this trilogy about the history of these people and what was happening in their past and how to understand them in the present. And he had a whole geography and a map of this world that he created. And I'm just going to be honest with you. As a college student, I'm reading this book, and it was so, it is, so immersive, that you're reading it and your brain begins to think, at least mine, begin to think, this is real history. And I found myself thinking as I'm reading through this trilogy, how have I never heard about any of this? What was my high school in- uh, history teacher doing? They left all this out. This is the best stuff. And I would catch myself and I would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This has the appearance of history, It's so immersive. You get into it and you feel like you're actually reading something historical. It's just the appearance. It's very deceitful in one sense because he did an amazing job creating Middle Earth, but it's only the appearance of history. When Paul says here, these man-made religions, self-made religions have the appearance of wisdom. This is what he's saying to you. He's saying, look, when you look at dominant religions in the world, religions like, let's say, Hinduism or Islam, there's a sense in which they have an appearance of wisdom. When you sit down and talk with somebody who is a member of a modern-day American cult or minority religion, someone who's part of the LDS church, Latter-day Saints church, or someone who buys into the Watchtower Society and the Jehovah's Witness, when you talk to those people, what they're saying on the surface of it has the appearance of wisdom. When you talk to a secular person in the United States of America or Western Europe who has bought in, they think they're non-religious, but they've bought into a political form of religion, And that political religion that they're following may be like the LGBTQ plus movement. It may be like man-made climate change is the most important thing. It may be critical race theory and social justice and all the rest of it, but it's it's a political form of religion. On the surface of it, there's a wisdom to it. It has the appearance of wisdom. That's why people buy into these things. They have the appearance of wisdom. Don't forget, what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14 and 16. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a lot of systems of thought out there that on the surface you look at and you say, you know what, it kind of makes sense. I kind of understand what they're saying. It's the appearance of wisdom. Notice how Paul contrasts this for the church in Corinth. He says, the word of the cross, that's not man-made religion, that's God-revealed religion. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Human beings left to their own devices and their own wisdom cannot, they do not have the ability in themselves to know God. But it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Look, you just have to make a decision. Do I want to hold to a religion, a faith, a cult's doctrine, a political religion that may have the appearance of wisdom? It may be built on human wisdom. Or do I want to hold to the foolishness of the cross? The world says it's folly. But what the world says is folly, God actually sees as true wisdom. And Paul's warning these people, beware, self-made religion only, at best, has the appearance of wisdom. Here's the second warning. Self-made religion is animated by the elemental spirits of the world. This is where we come back to this idea of the principalities and the powers. These evil personal spiritual beings that exist in the spiritual realm. Self-made religion is animated by the elemental spirits of the world. I'm going to put a few verses on the screen, and I've given you the references. I just want you to listen to what the Bible says. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. They're literally offering sacrifices to statues and they have some idea that there is a god or goddess that exists behind or beyond that statue, that idol. And Paul says what you're actually doing is offering a sacrifice to a demon, a personal, evil, spiritual being. Look at this one, 1 Timothy 4. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Demons. In their mind, they're holding to something that is filled with man's wisdom. But what they're actually holding to is something that comes from a deceitful spirit, the teaching of demons. Look at the book of Revelation, chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. They thought they were worshiping these little G-God statues, these idols. But what they're really worshiping is a demonic power that stands behind that statue. Now, look, for Americans, this is kind of strange stuff because we don't talk a lot about demons. Or if we do, it's in certain charismatic circles where all they talk about is demons. We're a Baptist church, so we sort of hold that at arm's length and we say, hey, take that stuff, take it across the street. We don't want any of that. All of obsession with demons, and we don't want to be obsessed with demons. But we also want to understand what the New Testament says. And what the New Testament is telling us is that in this ancient world where all of these pagan peoples worshipped these different deities, behind those deities were evil, personal, spiritual beings. Demons, if you prefer that term. Principalities and powers, if you want to use the academic term. The elemental spirits of the world, if you want to use the Colossians 2 Term. And Paul goes one step farther in this passage when he's talking about you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to its regulations? And he talks about do not handle, do not take, do not touch, all these rules that go back to food and drink and new moon and Sabbath and festival and all the rest. This is what Paul is saying. Not only do these spiritual beings stand behind the idols of the pagans. But these evil spiritual beings also stand behind the form of false teaching that is legalism at its heart, that says you can earn your way with God. You must earn your way with God. Even, even the kind of false teaching, the kind of self made religion that says hang on to Jesus and keep all these Old Testament rules and mix that together into one syncretistic worldview. Even behind something like that, there stand evil spiritual forces, the elemental spirits of the world, principalities and powers, demonic beings. And this is Paul's argument in verse 20. Look what he says. With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. With Christ, you died to those powers. How did that happen? Well, it happened back up in verse 12 where we were buried with Christ in baptism. That's a death. We're united to Christ in baptism, in his death, in his resurrection. Connected to Christ, verse 15 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, the elemental spirits of the world. He disarmed them by dying for our sins on the cross. The Christian has been freed from these spiritual forces that stand behind pagan religion and legalistic religion. You've been freed from them. You've died to them. They are literally dead to you. You are dead to them. Why then, Paul says, would you go back and submit? Why would you go back into slavery? You died to them. Jesus set you free from their power. Why would you go back and follow all of these rules and slide right back into the false religion that they've inspired? If you want to take a a completely trivial example of Paul's logic here, imagine a family going to Disney World. And imagine a family has bought the Fast Pass, the premier Fast Pass. They can cut in every line all day long. Do not pass go, just go directly to the front of the line. But imagine a family who has gone to Disney World and bought the Fast Pass and they can go right to the front of the line saying, you know what, that line looks fun. Let's just <laughs> get in the line. This sign at the, the line, it says, we'll be in line for four hours. Let's, let's just do it and see what happens. You, you would say, excuse me, you have the fast pass. Well, why are you enslaving yourself in this line? Go to the front. That's what you paid for. And that's what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth. Why are you going back and following all of these rules and regulations trying to earn your way with God? All that does is put you in submission to these spiritual forces of evil that Jesus has freed you from you died with Christ you've been buried with Christ he disarmed those evil spiritual personal beings why would you go back and submit to them it's animated by the elemental spirits of the world danger number three self-made religion is always legalistic always legalistic this is the connection to our passage last week the legalism that was a temptation for the church in Colossae was to say, we love Jesus, but we also know that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament rules and regulations and laws and all of that stuff, the food, the drink, the Sabbath, the new moons, the festivals, all that stuff, we've also got to do Do all of those things. We've got to perform in a certain spiritual way in order for Jesus to really love us. Yes, we need Jesus, but we've also got to do all of these things. And Paul says in verse 23, these things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. That's the legalism, the severity to the body, the asceticism, but there's no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Look, every self-made religion, at its heart, is legalistic. It's one of the things you discover when you study world religions and cults and other faiths. At heart, they are all. Legalistic, And I'll just give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. Islam says you you have five things you need to do, the five pillars of Islam. You do one, two, three, four, five. You do them good enough. You do them consistently enough. And when you die, the scale may hopefully, possibly, potentially tip in your favor. But it's up to you. Hinduism, with all the gods, however many gods it has. We haven't settled that issue this morning. Hinduism does say there is an eightfold noble path. Eight things that you need to do if you want to be a good Hindu and experience whatever it is that Hindus think happens in the afterlife that's positive. Eight things that you ought to do. Uh, Minority religious groups like cult groups, like LDS Church and Jehovah's Witness. Long list of do's and don'ts. You must do this. You can't do that. You got to do this. Don't you dare do that. It's up to you. They say Jesus is great, but really this thing hinges on you in your obedience. Postmodernism, as a worldview, it manifests itself in the religion of Disney that says you got to follow your heart. That's the one thing you got to do if you want to be free and you want to experience liberation and you want to find happiness. You have to do this thing. You have to look inside and find what's there and then you have to follow it. It's up to you, something that you do. Political religions, I listed off several of them earlier. It's activism that's their legalism. You've got to be an activist. You've got to protest this. You've got to cancel that. You've got to be for that. You've got to boycott this. There's always something that you've got to do. The Judaizers that Paul dealt with in Galatia and in places like Colossae, it was the old covenant. It was you've got to obey God's laws good enough in order for God to love you. All of that legalism Falls under what Paul said to the church in Galatia, Galatia in Galatians 2. He said, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot keep God's law perfectly enough in order to save yourself. The only way that you can experience salvation is by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So also, we have believed Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's pretty black and white. It is a remarkable thing that all of the self-made, all of the man-made religions in the world boil down to legalism, works of the law, something that you've got to do, some level of performance that you've got to measure up to. One last warning, self-made religion is of no value in sanctification. And what Paul's talking about here at the very end of this passage is that self-made religion is powerless to change us on the inside. It's only an external cosmetic change. It cannot save you ultimately, and it also can't change you on any real meaningful level. These have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. This is verse 23, asceticism, severity of the body. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They can't change who you are on the core of who you are. I thought this week as I, as I read this verse, I thought about my sister. When I was in college and she was in high school, she got a Jeep. I'm still kind of bitter because this Jeep was nicer than anything I ever drove. I showed talked to you a few weeks back on a Wednesday night about my junkie Bronco too. She gets this Jeep, this lovely Jeep. And it kind of looked like that. It's not a picture of hers, but it kind of looked like that. And people were so impressed with her Jeep because it was a Rubicon. Now, I had no idea what that meant, but apparently that's a big deal. It's a Rubicon Jeep. It's a fancy Jeep. It's a nice Jeep. Come to find out, it's actually a base-level Jeep. Somebody put big tires on it, lifted it up, and then bought stickers that said Rubicon and put the stickers on the front. It was not quite as nice as I thought it was when she got it. And here's the point. You can put stickers on a car that say it's one kind of car. It doesn't make it that kind of car. It's not the features on the interior. It's not the features in the engine. It's still a base-level Jeep. You can put Rubicon on it. That's just an external cosmetic change. A couple years ago, you remember the massive apocalyptic hailstorm we had in Odessa. My truck was parked out. We were here on a Wednesday night sending a mission team off. It got destroyed. I put it in the shop. I got it out. And they just had to redo everything on my truck, like your cars. It's a a Ford F 150, a white Ford F 150. And I just have the base level, just the cheapest Ford F 150 you can buy. But when I got it back from the shop, they had replaced my shiny silver decals with something that says XLT. And I thought, now this is fancy. (laughs) I sent in a base level Ford and I got an XLT out. That's not how it works. It's a base-level Ford. It just has a sticker on the outside that impresses you, and you say, we're paying the preacher too much. What's he doing driving a Ford? What in the world? It's just external cosmetic change. That's what self-made religion is. It doesn't change you on the inside. It is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It is of no value in making you more like God in sanctifying you. It is only cosmetic external change at best. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5 and I'll let you look that up. Here's the summary, okay, of the self-made religion. It has only the appearance of wisdom. It is animated by the elemental spirits, evil, demonic beings stand behind self-religion, self-made religion. It's rooted in legalism, meaning it's about what we do. It's about our performance and is of no value in sanctification. That's the warning at the back end of this passage. The hope is you can find salvation in Jesus Christ not Jesus plus a little bit of paganism, not Jesus plus a little bit of obedience to the old covenant law, you can find salvation in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. What does that mean? When we say salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone, this is what it means. There is one true God. One. He's absolutely holy. Perfectly holy. He's completely unique. And he has created us in his image. But because of our connection to Adam and Eve, we have fallen short of the standard that God set for us. We're sinful people. We're sinful in our nature. We're sinful from birth. We're sinful in our words, and our thoughts, in our deeds, in our lives. Sin impacts every part of who we are as human beings and everything we do as human beings. And as a result, we are separated from God because of our sin. God is holy, we are sinful people, and we've separated ourselves from God. But there's good news. Colossians 1, 19, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God didn't just send another prophet. God himself came to save us. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, he came to reconcile the fallen world to himself. If you have your Bible, look at what Paul says in Colossians 1, 21 to 22. He says, you, sinful people, who were once alienated, separated from God, and you were hostile in mind, sin was a problem not just externally, but in your mind, and you were doing evil deeds, you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus Christ has done that for sinners. It's the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in him, to reconcile sinful people to the holy God. So here's the self-made religion. It has the appearance of wisdom. It's animated by the elemental spirits. It's based on what we do, has no value in sanctification to change us on the inside of who we are. Okay? Contrast that with salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians that the good news of the cross is folly to the world, but it's actually the wisdom of God. It doesn't just have the appearance of wisdom, it is the wisdom of God. Self-made religion, animated by the elemental spirits of the world. Salvation in Jesus Christ, this is a result of the life-giving Spirit. Do you notice what Paul said? We talked about this just briefly last week in verse 19. He talks about growth that is from God. We plant, we water, God gives the growth. It's the Holy Spirit's job to give life where there's death. Animated by the the life giving Holy Spirit. Legalism, it's rooted in what we do. How well can you perform for God? Salvation in Jesus Christ has nothing to do with what you can do, it has to do with what Christ has done in disarming the principalities and powers and laying down his life on the cross for sinners. Man made religion, self made religion, has no value in sanctification. In Christ, we are new creations changed, not just externally and cosmetically like a sticker on a car, but changed from the inside out. There's two options in the world. There's a lot of religions. There's a lot of cult groups. There's a lot of political manifestations of religion that you can sign up for. There's a lot of choices, but really they boil down to two. Self-made religion or salvation in Jesus Christ. The call for you and the call for me this morning is to confess your sin, to agree with God about your sin, to turn from your sin, and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do that, you'll be saved.